You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Alongside a lot of the discussion of vacation plans, end of school, which is happening this week for our kids, heading to the cottage, all of those kind of summer conversation pieces. Alongside of those other phrases in my conversations with you and with other people have dominated the conversation. It's been a normal part of things. And I don't know, I mean, I, th- I don't think this is abnormal. This is maybe the way it always is, but it feels like it's just escalated. And I'm not exactly sure all the reasons for that. Maybe it's just in the life of our church or just in society in general. We're going to get there in a second. But here's some phrases that have dominated basically every conversation, most conversations that I have with people. One is this, and this is not just you, this is me too. Aaron, I'm so busy right now said that recently? I feel so busy. Usually that phrase is closely followed up with another phrase, which is, should die down in a couple of weeks, though. Yeah, I, I, I think I've learned now, I'm like calling that up, like, no, it's not. It's not, you know it's not going to die down in a couple of weeks. Life is so busy right now. Another one is, Aaron, it feels like I don't have enough time in the day to get everything done that I need to get done. Here's the most common one, though. Aaron, I feel so tired. I feel so tired. Which might also have to do with another one that I hear a lot is, I say, dude, I didn't sleep well last night. And I feel so tired. You know, these things are said to us, and then you think, what do we say in response to that? What do we say to this? What do you, when I inevitably are going to tell you on a Sunday morning when I see you, or tonight at Kale and Alicia's, Aaron, how are you doing? Man, I feel so tired. What do you say to me to encourage me? What do we say to each other? When we share these things, other than offering melatonin out of your pocket, I don't know if anyone offers just hands out melatonin out of your pocket, but other than that, no, we shouldn't do that. But the, uh, other than that, like, what do, you, what do you say to people, right? When they're saying, I'm so tired. Is there a shred of hope, a reprieve from the weight of restlessness? Especially in the West where we live, in the society or culture we find ourselves in, where we inherently believe some things about ourselves, where accomplishment is akin to value. The more things you accomplish in life, the more things you do, the more valuable as a person that you are. I think we've learned that this week, even though no one in our church wants to say that some people's lives, are, everyone's life is of equal value, we really don't believe that or practice that when there are five billionaires at the bottom of an ocean that are lost. And I'm not saying they don't have value either, but when that gets the headlines, when people die at sea all the time. Like, the more accomplishments we make in life, we inherently believe that you are more valuable. That's what we just believe. And no one wants to admit that, but we kind of believe that to be true. 
The one that we find ourselves a lot in, in, in conversation is that busyness is akin to importance. The busier I am, the more important I feel. How many of us have used that in a conversation? I know I have men, I'm so busy, kind of wanting you to believe that he must have a lot of important stuff on the go. Busyness is akin to importance. And I think now this is kind of a new concept. The flood of opinion and information, especially in the online world, is our flag to wave of our own moral excellence. You know, the more we know, the more, more things we read, the more articles we read, now we are morally excellent to the person we are talking to. We just kind of inherently believe these things. And we're tired. Some of us, and please... I hope I'm not the only one in the room that sometimes feels this way. To some of us, rest feels unnatural or even wrong. You feel bad to stop. You feel like you're doing something wrong. Because we inherently believe those things that I just said, when we stop, we feel like we're doing something wrong. Rest feels unnatural or even wrong because it is so other to what we've been shaped by in our world. To all of us, at least, even if it doesn't feel unnatural or wrong, to all of us, at least, it, is, it seems elusive. I'm using this example because this, ha- this has probably happened more than once to me. It's like looking for an important document in a crowded office that all of a sudden you got an email and you need to find that document, Right? And all, now you got stacks of paper to look through and files to look through, and you can't find this important document that this person needs. This has happened to me more than once. Uh, you can't find this important document you need in a crowded office that has been overcome with information and burdens of life that really aren't that important except for this one piece of paper that's somewhere in this office. The more you look, the more disheveled that office gets. <laughs> Nikki and I have been through that a few times. The more disheveled that office gets, you think, I'm never going to find this thing that I desperately need. This rest, this peace that passes understanding pales in comparison to all of the other burdens and things that are important in my life. How in the world am I supposed to find time to rest? So what do you say? Well, Jesus had something to say to this. Verses that probably, if you've gone to church in any length of time, you know these verses, but they're the verses in Matthew 11 that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and where you will find rest for your souls. So that's what we're going to go through in the summer, not just that verse. Find rest my soul. Rest. It sounds topical, but not really. It's not, this is not going to be like a topical one like we just did uh, about the image of God, not like the last one. Normally, I'm going to be walking through Hebrews 3 and 4 throughout the summer. That's where I'm going to be. I'm not going to be there today. And then we've also got some people sharing from different psalms that highlight the need of rest or rest in, a, in their life that they found in God. Today, we're going to be looking at the words of Jesus himself. So if you have a Bible, you can go to Matthew 11. That's where we're going to be in those verses, Matthew 11, 25 to 30. If you haven't already gone there, that's where we're going to be. My goal, though, for this, for this series on rest, find rest, my soul, 
My goal for this series is this. It's not to simply understand. It's to experience the touch of God. That's why one of the reasons why I wanted to go through, not just through a passage, uh, but to go through even, even the Psalms, which tend to illustrate the metaphor of, of the human experience interacting with the touch of God. That's my goal, is not to simply understand a concept, it's to experience what this is, to go beyond concept and outlines to actually soothe your soul. I really don't believe the purpose of Sunday mornings is content. Sometimes I hear pastors say that, like we're just providing more content. I really don't think Sunday mornings are for content. You, if it was, my goodness, like you did not, you do not need my voice on this, even this topic. You don't need my voice if this is just content. You know how much podcasts and articles you can read if you want content on anything. You Google rest in God and you're going to get a plethora of content online. So I don't think Sunday mornings is for content. And my intent is not just to add my voice to the many other voices because there are better voices, honestly, you can listen to. And if you want to follow up with that, I'd be happy to give you some resources and I'll probably send out, send out some resources you can listen to if you're looking for content. But I don't think Sunday morning preaching, when we gather together, it's not content. I'm going to use this. This is incarnate, what we do on Sunday mornings. It's happening right here together. Like, I'm not a face on a screen. I'm not a voice on a podcast. It's happening right here. I'm not a talking head. I'm a, hopefully, I'm your friend. I'm your brother in Christ. We are a body that we, as you look around, you can see one another. You, you, we touch one another, maybe even smell each other. That's how close we get, right? We're a body together. It's happening right here. This is not just content, that information load that you, you know, load up onto your brain and you're good to go for your week. That's not what this is about. We are an embodied people. You look around. Do that now. Look around. You see bodies, souls, and spirits that are being encouraged together in this room by the Spirit of God. Amen? That's what's happening. An embodied people confronting a real palpable God. That's what Sunday mornings are. This is not... Man, if this is just about content, content to understand, I would just say go home and turn on a podcast because you can get content you need from there. That's not what this is, though. We are a body together, meeting with a real God. And so my hope is not that you would understand the concept of rest, but this is, this is going to blow your mind, but that you would actually rest. That's my hope. Not that you would understand a biblical concept but that you would actually experience the concept that's telling you to do, that you would actually rest together as a church. So with that being said, before I get into the passage, let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. I, I, we, we come before you now as an embodied gathering of people. We sit beside each other. We see each other. We look, at, we look into each other's eyes This is real. It's happening right here and we are confronted and encouraged by a real palpable God, one that we experience. We experience your presence. We experience your goodness and we experience your glory as we gather together. May we understand your word, but more than that, may we experience it. May we just not understand what Jesus meant when he said, come to me, you who are weary, but may we actually come to Jesus. 
because we're weary. May we do that this morning. I pray for this in your name. Amen. I'm probably not going to get a great answer. I'm not going to give a great answer to rest and what is it, because we're going to answer that throughout today. And please hear me out. You're not going to get all of the answers this morning, and that's not my point. I just want to look at one text. Like so many things, though, when it comes to rest, that when we talk about in the Bible, there's a twofold reality. One of them that Colin hit already this morning, that if we have expressed faith in Jesus... That if we have expressed faith in Jesus, you are here because you are a Christian. You've expressed faith in Jesus. We are in Christ. Okay? We are in the rest of God. That's, that's the truth of the Bible. That when it talks about rest in this passage in Hebrews 3 and 4, if you've expressed faith in Jesus, you are 100% in the rest of God. And it's this truth that we live in victory. We don't live in unknowns. Like there's so many unknowns in life, but it is this one reality that Jesus has come, died on a cross. That's what we celebrate when it comes to communion. And the victory is over. We live in an unknown victory that our sins are forgiven. We've been given new life. That's the ultimate rest of God that the scriptures is talking about. That's one reality. Amen? So if you have expressed faith in Jesus, you are 100% living in the victory that he has secured for you. That's the greatest truth that you can live in. And that encourages and supposed to motivate everything else we do in this life. We don't live a life that's like, man, I hope that one day I'm going to be saved. I hope that one day I'm going to experience God's rest. No, you are 100% in if you've expressed faith here today. Amen? Amen. That is the greatest reality that we live in. So that is one reality of the rest of God. That's the overarching truth of the Bible that Jesus has come. He has fulfilled everything that has been commanded in the Bible, lived a sinless and perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose against so that we have new life so that we are in Christ. And we can rest and have hope in that. That's the number one reality. But there's also another reality. Remember, we looked at Romans 5, verse 10 in our last series, where it says, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, that's what I was just talking about, through the death of his son. But also there's another reality. How much more, having been reconciled, now that we've been saved, shall we now be saved through his life? That as we walk with Jesus and learn from him, we begin to experience life as it was intended to be experienced, as it will always be. That's the second reality of being a Christian. We live in a reality that Jesus has already secured our rest, but we live in also another reality where we learn from him to experience what rest was always meant to be here on earth. A major part of all of that. Think of forgiveness. Like we've been forgiven by Jesus. That is secure. The concept of forgiveness. We have been completely forgiven by Jesus. But we're also commanded to learn what forgiveness looks like. Right? When we sin before God, even though our victory is secured, that we celebrate in communion, we also are to come to God when we have sinned to ask for his Forgiveness, not to secure this, this has already been secured, but to learn about the God who offers forgiveness day in and day out to learn the way of Jesus, right? That's, that's this twofold reality that we live in as Christians and rest 
is the same way. So even those who have been secured of this rest of God, this victory that God has secured for us, why does rest now seem so elusive to us? Well, this is what Matthew 11 talks about. Matthew 11. We sometimes jump straight, when we talk about these things, straight to verse 28 to 30. But let me read the first two verses when it comes to Matthew eleven twenty-five and 26. Because this is the context of the come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. This is what it says. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Let me finish the whole passage just to read the whole thing so you get the whole context. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then it says in verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, those verses that come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest, fall within this greater context of Matthew talking about wisdom, how life is supposed to work. He says, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And when Jesus says that, he's not talking about those who are truly wise and understanding. He's talking about those who have presumed wisdom and understanding. That don't get it. They haven't been revealed the rest of God. What it means to come to Jesus to find rest. Those who presumed are wise and understanding. Look back in verse 16 of this chapter. Jesus also says this about the wise, the presumed wise and understanding. But to what shall I compare this generation? I think he says that to that generation, but it also you could apply it to every generation that comes afterwards. What shall we say to this generation? It's like children, funny enough, he uses childlike in a good way, but then kind of in a not so good way in this one. It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What is Jesus talking about there? What he's doing is pointing at a generation of people that have been inherently self-righteous and have refused to in, like to take a look at their own life that they are the ones who need to change. And usually, and I could say this not just in that generation, but man, you can find this in our generation as well. If you spend any sort of time on the internet, you will find that no matter what happens on the internet, you're going to get judgment from people no matter what you do. You know what I mean? That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's like he said, John came, he, he didn't eat and drink. They said he's got a demon. Well, I came and I was eating and drinking and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. It's like, you can't win. 
It's the selfish righteousness of this generation refuses to even take a look at their own heart and they're casting judgment on everything else. You can't win with these guys, basically is what he's saying. There's an inherent self-righteousness that shows itself, in, and I think this is where we see this in our own hearts sometimes. We make quick, snappy judgments without proper introspection into our own heart. We are so quick to judge anyone else's motives except for our own, aren't we? I know I am. We are so quick to judge the motives of others. Jesus is saying even his own motives, but never consider our own motives. I think it can manifest itself differently in every generation, but I think we could say this generation as well as this generation, especially in an era of hyper-information, man, there can be some hyper self-righteousness out there. I have learned, I used to think self-righteousness was a religious problem. It's not. It's a human problem. Okay? Self-righteousness is not a religious problem. I mean, it is that too. But it's a human problem. Jesus goes on to pronounce woes then in the next passage, I'm not going to read it all, upon cities who refuse to repent of their presumed way of life. There was this presumed way of life that Jesus was coming to completely flip on its head. He says, I didn't reveal it to the wise and understanding. They wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't hear it. I revealed it to little children. I don't think Jesus is specifically talking about to just little children, or that would cancel all of us, except for the kids in the back. But to those whose heart is like a child, it's similar to other passages that Jesus says, let the children come to me. If you you are going to accept the kingdom of God, you've got to become one of these. Here is the crux, okay? Here's the crux that I think Jesus is saying as he leads into come to me all who are weary and I'll give you rest. Here is the crux of rest. Why rest is so elusive. And man, I'm speaking to my own heart in this as well. Of why those with a childlike heart are willing to accept it and those who are presumed wise are not. And it comes down to control. It comes down to control. Which is a sub section of trust. It comes down to control. Those who want to remain in control of their lives, who refuse to trust in what Jesus has offered, I'm good. I've got this figured out. It's why it's hard to rest. It's why it's hard to rest for me. I refuse to let go of control of my own life. See, I think if rest was reachable, because that's what Jesus is saying here, it's not reachable to you. If rest was reachable by our own doing, we would all be more comfortable with that answer. If Jesus says, okay, before you come to me, all you who are weary and I will give you rest, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a course, okay? You're going to get an MDiv in rest then you'll be able to rest. I think we would all be more comfortable with that. I can do that. I can go to school and get, you know, because I earned it. And I think we view rest the same way. It's like, I, I figured it out. I've, I know how to rest. And yet it's so 
elusive. In fact, it's the very opposite of what Jesus says, how he's given. Think of some of the responses you get, you give to your own soul in the pursuit of rest that I've told myself. You, know, you think about this now. What are some of the responses you give in order to think, now I can finally rest? As soon as, once I get all my stuff done, then I'll rest. You know, we were just talking to parents from our school. So, so much of the, the view in life is I need to work my tail off, you know, for years and years and years, and then I can retire and rest. And life will be good. But it never seems to come. Like, think of the ways we justify ourselves. Once I do all of the things that I need to do, then I can finally rest in God. Once I've got enough money in the bank, then I can rest. Then I'll be satisfied. Then, I will ha- then I'll be happy in God. Like, think of the excuses we offer ourselves. I earned it. I attained it. I think we would be more comfortable if that's what Jesus was saying. But true rest, guys, listen to this. True rest is an offense to those who don't want to relinquish control of their lives. It's an offense. If you do not want to give up control of your life, like Jesus saying, and become like a little child and trust me, it's an offense to you. I'm not giving up control of my life. But in order to rest, Jesus says you have to. There's no other way. It was an offense to the religious elite of that day who Jesus is talking to. Early rabbis, Jewish teachers, they would talk of what was called the yoke of the Torah or the law. The yoke was, you know, when Jesus says, take my yoke, and I'll get there in a second, but they would talk about the yoke of the Torah or the law, and the yoke was this symbol of a harness, and the point wasn't bad, it was In fact, they would say it was a privilege to have the yoke of the law. It's guiding me. It's steering me through life. It was a privilege to wear that yoke. But what they would do is in the practice of Sabbath, which we're not going to take a long look at today, or we're really not going to take any look at it at all today. We're going to look at that in in other weeks coming up. But in the practice of Sabbath, which was this rhythm, this during the week to cease what you are doing, that's literally what Sabbath means is to cease. They were to cease from their work and rest. But they were so overly careful not to break that law that literally they would describe it as we're going to put a fence around the law so that we can ensure that we will, be, that we will maintain our own righteousness and we will not break the law. We're going to put a fence around it. You know, I, I remember growing up as kids, like we were not allowed to do anything on Sundays. I didn't know why, because it was Sabbath, but we couldn't play sports because it was the fence around the law, and we would, it would feel bad if you moved at all on a Sunday. Literally, this is what's been going on for a millennia. They were so overly careful not to break the law that they put new regulations on top of the law to ensure that they would not break it. And what it became into was Sabbath, which was for mankind in order to rest and be present with God, turned into a burdensome thing than ever before. It was just like another thing that you've got to now do to maintain your own righteousness. You kind of follow me here? So instead of the law being for you, that it's good for you to follow, to be with God, it became a burden on you. It's like you better not break it or you will wreck your own righteousness. 
It was another way of earning one's righteousness. Guys, man, this is, a less, this is a hard lesson that I have to learn all the time. Trying to maintain your own righteousness is a tiring, tiring lot. Like trying to be good enough, that's a tiring lot. We need the message that Colin just spoke on. It's like, man, I am, we're all in the same boat here. But I tell myself all the time that try to maintain my own self-righteousness, man, it's tiring. And that's what the people of that generation were tired of too. It was a burden on them. That's why Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And rather than that yoke that you've come to despise, Jesus says what? Take my yoke upon you. Jesus says the answer isn't abandonment of this constrainment or this yoke. In fact, the yoke was a good thing. It's not bad. It's necessary. The yoke was how life works. I want to go to a passage, Jeremiah 6, verse 16. You don't have to go there. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, because I think Jesus is channeling this verse in the prophet Jeremiah 6, verse 16. He says, Thus says the Lord. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. Here's the good way. This is the way, this is the good life. Walk in it and find rest for your souls. This was the way that you should go and find rest for that. But Jesus said, well, in in Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, but they said, my people said, no, we won't walk in that. We're not going to walk in the good way. I think Jesus is channeling the language of Jeremiah chapter 6. He says, guys, I'm, I'm giving you rest for your souls. And Jeremiah wasn't pointing to a fence not to cross. He was pointing to that it would be fulfilled in me. I am the good way. I am, this is the yoke that you were always meant to have. Take my yoke and learn from me. And guys, that might be the hardest thing that you ever do. Is to let go of the yoke of our own self-righteousness, the yoke of our own control, and take on the yoke of Jesus. That might be the hardest thing you ever do because we are asked not to do more, but to trust. That's really hard. We all want to be told what to do, what to do. But Jesus is saying, trust. Not do more. Trust me. Especially for those of you who have been burned by a yoke of a self-righteous leader or figure in your life. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 23, speaking about the religious elite of that day, Matthew 23 verse 4 says, they tie up, uh, they tie up heavy burdens on you that are hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Some of you maybe have been under the burden of a figure in your family or maybe in a church, and hopefully not in this one, but I'm not saying that, that we also can't get this wrong. But some of you have been under the burden of a self-righteous figure, and you're like, I'm, I, I can't put on another yoke. I just want to take this yoke off. It's never fit. But when Jesus says, take this yoke, 
you know, the question is, why would I take that yoke? And I love the promise of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And it says, for I am gentle, as opposed to the religious elites that you've had to deal with. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm not the one trying to control you, but to help you. I am not the merciless taskmaster of the law. I'm the humble servant that came not to be served, but to serve you. I remember when I was in high school, I think I've told this story before, but it works really, works really well. When I was in high school, one of my first jobs was to work at, uh, before they bought it out, it was it's now home, home, home hardware, home building centers. They still have those around. I go to Home Depot now, which, which is like my dad, because he worked at home hardware for years, like he will not step into a Home Depot. Okay? So I can't tell him that I go to Home Depot or Lowe's even worse. Um, before home hardware, if everyone remembers this, it was called Beaver Lumber. Do you remember Beaver Lumber? My dad worked at, that was my first job, Beaver Lumber. And I would stock shelves. Okay, I was like grade nine. And I would stock shelves. And my dad didn't work in the same area that I worked, and I would just come home and go to Beaver Lumber, ride my bike in Chatham, go to Beaver Lumber. And I remember when I started, the guy I was put under, the, the manager I was put under, was a guy who was always watching me. Do you ever hate when you're trying to do a job and they're always watching you? Like, how are you supposed to do a job when, like, you can feel his eyes on you everywhere you go? You know what I mean? Like, you're like hey, put this, he would tell you what to do, really loosely tell you what to do. I'm, a, I'm like 14 years old. I have no idea what anything means in life. He says, you do this, and I have no idea what it, and you just shake your head like you know what you're doing, but you have no idea what you're doing. And then you go to do that thing that you have no idea what you're doing, but you see him following you everywhere and correcting every little thing that you're doing. Is there any rest in that? Is there any enjoyment in that kind of job? That's the yoke of self-righteousness, though. It's like you're always going to mess up. There's always failure around the next corner, and the eyes of, you know, of judgment are always upon you. That's the law. That's the yoke of the law. I remember, though, the day that I got switched into a different, different department and got stock shelves in another area of the store, basically. And I was put under a really kind manager who took time and explained things to me, and he's like, I trust you, Aaron. So I went, and I still messed up, but he would show me how to, you know, show me how, I would come back to him and be like, how do I do this? See, that's being in the yoke of Jesus who is gentle and lowly. I'm not here to control you. I'm not here to see you fail or to, I'm here to help you. I came not to be served, but to serve you so that you would take my yoke and learn from me. Now, it didn't mean I didn't have responsibility. It didn't mean I didn't have a yoke, but I had one that fit me. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, in the end, uh, when he says, for my yoke is easy, I think that's a wrong translation of the, of the term. The, the word is, is my yoke is, is, the sense is like good or kind. I think in the context, it's my yoke actually fits you. 
My yoke fits you. It's the way you were always supposed to live. This is the yoke you were always meant to wear, and it's mine. You've been wearing a yoke that hasn't fit you your entire life, and that's why you can't rest. It's uncomfortable. My yoke actually fits you, and your burden is light. You can actually do the things that I've called you to do. Because value is not accomplishment in the kingdom of God, but what Jesus has accomplished. That's the, where we get our value. Importance is not how busy our life is, but our importance is we're in the presence of God with him. Moral excellence isn't something we wave as a flag. It's been, it's been bestowed upon us in the clothing of righteousness that Jesus has given to us. That's the yoke of Jesus. This is what you were always supposed to wear. And it fits you, finally. And it's rest for your soul. This is the come to Jesus call. I will end with this, and I kind of want to end with a challenge to you. I don't want to just like end it off, but I want you to kind of consider your own life, because this is, you know, relatively, this is the most practical of messages. We're just starting the series now. I want to, I want to kind of challenge you. This is the time to kind of think, get out a paper and pen or on your phone. As you're considering, man, Aaron, I feel so tired. What's going on? I would say this. True rest that we learn from this passage in the context of what Jesus is saying, I will give you rest. True rest is always about relinquishing control. If you are having a hard time resting, I would... Look at your, there's probably something you're unwilling to let go of. I don't know what that is. That's between you and you and the Holy Spirit. But there's probably something that you're unwilling to let go of. And it has been restless in your heart. There's something Jesus is like, Aaron, do you trust me? Not here, I'm giving you more to do. Do you trust me? Can you let that go? That's not just a question. Like the, I want you to actually answer that question. Not to me out loud right now, but write it down. This is what I want you to meditate upon as we sing our final song. Amber and team are going to come up and they're going to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, an old hymn. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I can't believe I got all those words correctly in that old hymn. True rest is always relinquishing control to Jesus.